My new book is out on Audible, How to Be a Capitalist Without Any Capital. You can grab it right now. Here's what a user Thomas Lornaviticus said. Latka is the real deal, five stars. Hey, Nathan, I just listened to your podcast with JLD. You killed it. I saw your book earlier last week and thought, meh, I'll wait when Kindle costs $1.99 or whatever, as I have over 150 books to catch up with. But then I sensed that this book may have something I need right now. I bought it for full price, but didn't really start reading it. Then talking with JLD, you mentioned that the strategies may not work if you wait. And that's so true. I read it. I'm feeling pumped to devour it even more. Thank you for sharing it all and kicking ass. Guys, all of you that listen to the podcast, you are the reason I wrote the book. SaaS CEOs, founders, entrepreneurs, go grab it today at capitalistbook.com. Especially if you like audio, go grab the audible version right now. Again, capitalistbook.com. He would have bought Google and Facebook stock earlier on. In serious terms, you know, he was part of the heyday back in 2012 when all these big exits in the social space, Buddy Media, Vitru, Involver, Wildfire, you name it, there were sales happening, Silver Pop. Uh, now he's jumping back into the game, specifically in 2013 with a company that was founded in 2010, already raised about 16 million bucks, working with a lot of publishers on helping them push content out to social. They've now raised about 32 million bucks, again, helping about 200 of these big, big publishers uh, bring in clicks back to their site and focus on how to make monetization work for them in a, in a landscape that's changing rapidly. Today, doing about 10 million bucks in ARR, that's up about 20 to 30% year over year. Uh, 90% plus renew, a revenue renewal basis, that's gross annually, and about 100% net revenue retention on a, on a uh, on an annual basis as well. Uh, again, about 45 people up in New York City building out this product right now doing a token issuance, hoping to raise 15 million bucks to get consumers behind them and enable micropayments so that they see less paywalls and have a, generally a better experience. This is the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn. Each episode features revenue numbers, customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. I had no money when I started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Jim Anderson. He has a distinguished track record in technology with a 20-plus year career spanning the development, marketing, and sale of technology. He spent the past 10 years on the cutting edge of social media, helping media companies and marketers more efficiently and effectively use technology such as artificial intelligence and blockchain to power their social media efforts. He's now running Social Flow, which we'll talk about today. Jim, are you ready to take us to the top? I am. All right. Tell us about Social Flow. What do you guys do and how do you make money? Well, we're the social marketing platform that most of the big media companies use to get their content out to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. So that that's simple. And most everybody doesn't realize the volume and the scale that goes on there. So our clients publish about 50 million posts a year. They get about a trillion in annual reach. It's a massive business. Mm-hmm. And, and what's the revenue model? Is it pure SaaS? Uh, it's, uh, it is pure SaaS from a core publishing standpoint, but the, the real challenge there is for these media companies is they put this content out to Facebook and Twitter, but who sells the advertising against Facebook and Twitter? So you, you get this dynamic where Facebook, Twitter, Google, et cetera, are making a fortune, which is great for them selling advertising against content they don't have to pay to create. So it creates a really interesting dynamic 
And that leads to the monetization challenge. So that, that's the one twist in the model is we ultimately have to help publishers and media companies make money on Facebook and Twitter. Okay, so how are you doing that? So we're doing a couple of things. One is helping take all of that high volume of content. It's all quality content too. So take 50 million posts. If you could imagine the top 10% of those posts, that's the best content out there on social. And, and you know, typically most social content, you probably know this from your own experience, is sort of the 80-20 rule, right? 80% of the reach and 80% of the engagement comes from 20% of the content. So if you could systematically identify that best performing content, make that available to advertisers for sponsorship, you'd have done something really interesting. And so we have a product that does that. Okay, interesting. And, and what portion would you say of your last 12 months revenue comes from that product versus your pure play SaaS? That's probably 30% and 70% comes from pure SaaS. Significant. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, not, not huge, but still significant. So 30%. And what's the model there? Is it a per- you take a percent of ad spend or what? Uh, it's well, it's uh, it's generally CPM based, but I mean, you, you can think about it as a percentage of revenue. Ultimately, when you blend those two things together, you have a transactional model along with a SaaS model. It creates some really interesting dynamics. Yeah, I want to talk more about that here in a second. But first, let's just dial in on the SaaS for a second. So what's the average company paying you per year or per month to use just your SaaS product? Well, let me start with the, the foundation. And so our, our core product starts at about $2,000 a month, $24,000 a year. A- average it can actually be quite a misleading thing because you know how, how you know, you got a whole bunch of people in a small, a, whole, a few very large ones, and the average is obviously somewhere in the middle. So, you know, probably talking, you know, $50,000, $60,000 a year would be, would be the average, but that's skewed. You got a lot of smaller folks and then a, a fewer number of, of very large uh, publishers and media companies. Yeah, it's to be expected. And, and let's put this on a timeline. When did you launch the company? Uh, I didn't launch it. I joined five years ago, almost five years ago to the day. I was with a company called Vitru, which we sold to Oracle back in uh, 2012. So sort of the first wave of social marketing platforms. Oracle came in and bought Vitru. Salesforce came in and bought Buddy Media. Google came in and bought Wildfire. And so that was uh, sort of the early heady days of social media. And then I joined Social Flow shortly thereafter. Were you one of the founders at Vitru or no? No, I was the chief operating officer. I, I got involved pretty early back back in the days when Facebook was still smaller than MySpace. If that helps you calibrate where we were, I mean, no, I, I remember. Worked, I, yeah, I yeah. spoke with Reggie on many occasions, and uh, yeah. I remember that heyday in 2012 when these crazy exits were happening. Even the Google one. I mean, they uh, ultimately Victoria's great, but they shut it down, uh, and it doesn't exist anymore. So interesting. You jumped back into the game, which is which is great. So that was you said five years ago when you joined the company. Five years ago, August 2013. Okay, and then reminding it, when was the actual company founded, even though it was pre, you know, before your date? I was back in 2011, 2000, maybe even late 2000, 2010. So okay, so you were there. Yeah, you were there pretty early, though. So, okay, good. And what was the context of you joining? Did they pursue you or did you pursue them? Yeah, they pursued me. It's funny when you uh, when you have a big exit to a company like Oracle, you immediately become smarter in the eyes of venture capitalists, <laughs> right? <laughs> I wonder what's up with that. Yeah. Uh, and so I got a call from a recruiter one day. It was funny. I was in Chicago visiting a client, and uh, you know I lived in Atlanta at the time. It was this uh, crazy uh, company in in New York City. It was sort of I didn't know anything about it. But the more I looked, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And so our, our customers at the time, when I walked in the door, included the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, small outlets. You may have heard of them. You know, publishing their content a- out to social, even back then using social flow. And so we do use algorithms, artificial intelligence. There's a whole lot of interesting dynamics. If you think about it, if you were going to tweet 150 times today, like say the Washington Post, which tweet should go out and when? And how would you manage the distribution of that content? Really very different problem than say what McDonald's or Procter & Gamble or Apple face. Yep. Now, did you come in with a round? A lot of times a VC will say, we'll put another million or, you know, five million into the company, but you've got to bring in a CEO. I came in right after the heel, uh, right on the heels of a B round. Yeah, so there was an investment, and then I came in right after that. Okay, exactly. so so how much total to date has the company raised? Uh, it's about thirty-two million dollars. Okay, and how much was how much was before you? 
Uh, maybe half of that. Half, uh, okay. Of that. Yeah, something okay. like that. Okay, interesting. That's great. Okay, uh, and then what have you scaled to today in terms of team size? Uh, we're about 45 people. Everyone. Uh, almost all here in New York. New York, very good. So you, you, you said, okay, fine, I'm moving from Atlanta, I'm going to New York and, and doing the whole New York thing, huh? Yeah, but I mean, I only lived in Atlanta for 31 of the previous 32 years, so it really wasn't a big change. <laughs> no big change at all. <laughs> right, maybe maybe a welcomed change. We'll, we'll see, you know. Okay, very good. So uh, 2010 founded, you joined 2013. Now 45 people based mainly in New York, 32 million bucks raised. Um, talk to me about scale now. How many customers are you working with? We're working about 200 customers. So again, most of the biggest and best media names in, in the world use us to, to get their content out. Yep. And uh, I mean, so this is obviously very much an enterprise sale. If I take that 200 customers times that kind of average $50,000 a year price point, I mean, that puts you guys somewhere, what, around 830 grand a month or north, almost 10 million bucks in ARR. It's funny how you can do that arithmetic. Yes. <laughs> Gen- generally accurate though? You're generally in the right ballpark. You and, got it. And talk to me about growth. What were you at a year ago? So, uh, so growth is, you know, it's interesting, probably about 20 or 30% a year is what we're looking okay. at right now. But that, that, dy- that revenue uh, side of things, the a product is named attention stream that I described. So the ability to take your high performing content and make that sponsorable to advertisers, that offers huge, huge growth potential. I mean, that, that's what we're really, everybody's after growth. And if we can help our clients make more money, then obviously the sky's the limit. So Jim, just to be clear, 30% of your business is transaction based. The other 70% is pure play SaaS. Your pure play SaaS business a year ago was doing call it 600, 650 per month in revenue, grew 20 to 30% year over year to where you are today, which is about a $10 million run rate. Uh, folk, talk to me about the transaction side of the business. Did that come after the pure play SaaS? Yes, that, that came That's new. to solve the problem. Because ultimately, why are publishers, why does the Washington Post want to put 150 tweets out today? Well, the, the reason they want to put it out is because that's where the eyeballs are, right? People have their mobile devices, they're scrolling through their Twitter feed, and the Washington Post or the New York Times or any other media company wants to be relevant and get their content in front of where the eyeballs are. Well, how do they actually make money? Well, I tap on the story. I go back to the Washington Post site. They try to serve me an ad. It's typically on a mobile device. It's pretty small. It's maybe not as premium as they would like it. That's historically been the value exchange for media companies. That's not enough, right? I mean, you you see the media companies sort of lament. They went from print dollars to digital nickels. And that, that was even before the social platforms came in. So ultimately, you've got to find a way to get them better compensated for their content. It's expensive to produce content. You know that. Uh, and, and so that, that model is increasingly unsatisfying, especially in an age where the, the platforms change their algorithms. And so the, the reach and the amount of traffic coming back to your website can be quite volatile depending on what the platforms and the algorithms do. Why, why advertising? Why, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times are all experimenting with kind of digital subscriptions tied to obviously premium content. Why not just double down on that? Why does average Advertising have to even be a revenue stream at all? Well, so it's, it's like actually a great question and probably a t- topic for a different day, but I'll give you the quick answer is uh, there is a real share of wallet problem with subscriptions. I mean, uh, pull out your credit card statement at the end of the month. How many subscriptions do you have on there? You know, never mind Washington Post, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, traditional print publications that have now moved into digital. You've also probably got Netflix. You've got Amazon Prime. You may have Hulu. You've got your cell phone bill. You've got your internet. You know, you, you as a consumer think of subscriptions not necessarily by category. You think, okay, how much, how much am I paying a month and am I really going to go subscribe to five more magazine subscriptions or legacy magazine properties? Or if NBC has a special offering, am I going to subscribe to that? I mean, it, you know, whatever you do, it, there's a real share of wallet challenge. Uh, for the winners ultimately make the, the likelihood that the next media company coming along selling a subscription is going to be that much less likely to be able to get your business. Yeah. I just think, Jim, the model, and you have unique insight into this, is what you mentioned earlier, scraping off the, the foam at the top of the latte, the top 10% of these posts. I mean, a lot of these posts, 
almost have to be sensationalized headlines, right? To draw, I mean, they just have to be to, to capture consumers' attention and things like that, which can sometimes lead to things that are, you know, slightly misleading, even though not intentional. But that's ultimately what feed, like the, the advertising incentive structure is ultimately what feeds this kind of fake news or exaggerated subject line content. And the only way you're going to solve that is to move away from that model. Is there anything your software is doing to help? Well, it's interesting. I, I I would say, by and large, our customers solve that themselves. I mean, you're you're right that clickbait, unfortunately, is a real problem out there. And if you write a sensationalized headline, you're going to have that problem. But most of our clients, you know, big enterprise, successful, reputable media companies, don't typically traffic in clickbait. And and I'll tell you, one of our clients, actually, the very best performing video on our entire platform last year was a, something about a recipe for sweet potato pie. I mean, it <laughs> it was crazy how, how popular that was. And and I don't know why that sort of sparked people's interest, but it had millions, tens of millions of video views, as I recall, just, uh, you know, and it was a very gorgeous looking sweet potato pie, but there was nothing sensationalized or clickbait about it. It just happened to be some kind of recipe that struck, you know, people's fancy at, at the right time. So I, I would dispute the point that that everything is driven by clickbait. Well, just to be clear, you, you said most of your clients were the big news guys. So I'm focusing on news. You know, Tasty is a great example of why food does well. So your example, I think it's totally different than news. News, in my opinion, right? And, I, and I, by the way, tell me if you think I'm wrong. Uh, news is driven by like timely, relevant, you know, sensation. Generally, sen- you have to sensationalize the headline, even if you have an amazing reporting staff and you're the New York Times to get attention, right? So I'm just, I'd love for a guy like you to figure out how we can get rid of advertising altogether so that we can get the incentive structures <laughs> behind all this worked out. Yeah, well, it's interesting. And we do have a, a big chunk of news. So yeah, when you do get into news, I, I'm still not sure I agree with the sensational. But of course, a, a headline needs to draw you in. That's the point. Of 100%. A if, it's, if it's not interesting, if it's boring, then you're not going to pay attention to it. So I, I will ag- agree with you there. I will say, though, even on the news, you know, they're typically the stories that get the best traffic. I mean, obviously, controversy, if there's a giant news event, if there's a yeah, tragedy. Always, those, always. I mean, that will do it. But also the heartwarming stories do really, really well. I mean, that, you know, sort of the, the puppy in danger that was saved or the, you know, the, the tribute to, uh, you know, somebody that's very heartwarming, things that generate emotion one, one way or another. And, and again, there, there's always a risk of sensationalization um, there. And, and you start to get also a little bit into sort of A-B testing of headlines and images and, and those types of things. And we do some of that, but it's really interesting that the real challenge there is to do a proper A-B test, you actually have to be able to divide your sample set into two equal groups. And, and the way Facebook, Twitter, and the other platforms work, you actually can't do that. It's, it's sort of an interesting challenge. Interesting. Um, let's let's round out some of the economics here. Churn's critical in a SaaS business. What's your churn today, and how do you manage it? Churn's very low. It's, uh, our renewal rate is well over ninety percent on an ARR basis, and it's interesting. A, a lot of the churn that we do have, a tends to be skewed on the so- smaller side rather than the bigger side, and b a lot of it is driven, frankly, by the economics of the business. People just can't afford it anymore, right? I mean, it's sort of when you're selling into an industry and to publications that face their own headwinds. You know, their economic models are challenged, as we just talked about. Maybe they can't get the subscription or the advertising revenue they want. Uh, oftentimes, they decide they can't afford enterprise software. So that's really where we focus. But we've got a very high renewal rate. Uh, and just really to be clear, low- that ninety percent—that's annual uh, and gross. Yeah. So gr- yes. gross revenue renewal rates annually are ninety percent plus. Yeah. Well, and if you want to count upsells in there, which I mean depends on how you want to calculate churn. Yeah, actually, add an upsells. Uh, uh, yeah, add in upsells. It's it's actually close to one hundred percent. So we we upsell as much as we lose, and we effectively preserve one hundred percent of the ARR. Yeah. So one hundred percent net revenue retention annually. That's a healthy spot to be. Um, CAC. What's it cost you to acquire one of these new customers? 
I, it's interesting. It's relatively low. Uh, we don't have a, you know, I, I can't quote you an exact a CAC or CAC to LTV ratio and all because it's sort of interesting that the divergence of our, the size of our customers and the layering in of the transactional revenue sort of makes that a little bit more complicated. But it's actually a reasonable, you know, customer acquisition cost. We don't spend a ton in customer acquisition. Uh, I will tell you, you know, as you're doing the model here, you're obviously experienced in all, all of these SaaS numbers here. I, our real challenge is ARPU, right? How, how do we drive, you know, the revenue up per, per user? And the way we typically do that is volume-based, right? The more properties you publish to, the higher the, the revenue we generate. And, and interestingly, that's the challenge. That's what leads us back to that revenue challenge because publishers are like, why would I up the volume of what I'm putting out when I, I find the monetization to be inadequate? So we really have to solve that monetization problem, which will then drive the ARPU up as well. Mm-hmm. Um, not getting, I just want to quantify when you say it, it's, it's reasonably low. I mean, what do you mean by that? So when you say CAC is low, are you talking you get your money back in the first four months of the customer subscription? How fast is payback, no matter what the cohort is? Yeah, it's uh, four to six months, yeah. Okay, so that's healthy, good. And that's, that's if they're on the small side at 20 grand a year or even if they're on the bigger side of 60, 70 grand. Generally speaking, you're willing to spend you know, four to six months. You got it, yep. That, that's healthy, okay, good. Um, uh, and where are you leveraging of the 45 people on your team? Is there an, is it an inside sales model, these price points? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, although it's interesting being in New York City, uh, which is sort of the media capital of the world. I mean, we have some of the benefits of an outside sales model with an inside sales team. So we, we call on a lot of customers here in New York uh, and, and even customers who aren't here in New York often find themselves in New York quite often. So uh, it, it's really a good place to be for that kind of model selling into the media business. Yep. Um, last funding round. When was it? Uh, about a year and a half ago, although interestingly, just yesterday, we announced a blockchain-powered initiative. So we're doing a security token offering. So we're actually in the midst of a, both a product extension and a fundraise now, uh, basically incorporating blockchain into our product. Tell me why you decided to do that. Well, it goes back to the monetization, right? And, and in some ways, that subscription challenge and the share of wallet problem we were talking about, what if you could get micro subscriptions to be actually uh, feasible, right? People have been talking about micropayments and micro subscriptions for years. It's never pre- been particularly practical because if I want to pay you a nickel to read uh, an article and there's 25 cents in transaction fees, well, that makes no sense at all. One of the interesting things about blockchain is it starts to create the ability to have very low uh, cost transactions and, and micro subscriptions become possible in a way that they weren't before. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how would this, well, first off, how much are you looking to raise in, in the token issuance? So target of 15 million cap of 25 million. Okay. Cap one. Okay, good. And then, um, let's say I participate in that. Walk me through how this would actually work. If I was consuming content that the New York times or, or your customers are putting through your platform. Yeah. So basically the value proposition to you as a consumer is a better browsing experience. Would you like to hit fewer paywalls and registration walls? And would you like to have less advertising and less intrusive advertising? Some variant of that uh, value proposition targeted to different groups of customers would be it. And so most people would say, of course, I'd like a better browsing experience. Opt into the system. It doesn't cost you any money. Uh, You basically opt in. And what we're doing is we're using digital tokens. Uh, Ultimately, the the settlements will be written to the blockchain, and we can get to that in a minute. Uh, But those tokens flow through, and ultimately, that's how publishers end up basically uh, being paid based on the number of tokens they accrue. I can probably name on two fingers the last two times I hit a paywall in kind of the news space. I think one was maybe Austin Business Journal when there's a local CEO I want to read about. And the second might have been like the Wall Street Journal or something. Um, Is that really a big enough pain point for people to search and find your ICO and say, yeah, I want to participate so that next time I hit those paywalls, I don't have to pay? And also, don't you also have to solve the other side of the equation? You have to make sure those guys are on board with that model. 
Absolutely. Well, so for, to answer your first question, you're right. Nobody's going to search out. Uh, and by the way, it's an STO, it's a security token offering, not Sorry, an ICO. Yeah. So I don't, I don't expect people to go search that that out. We've got to find people. I will tell you, increasingly, as more and more publishers experiment with that subscription challenge, you're running into more and more of these paywalls, registration walls, and basically friction in the system. And so, uh, yeah, I think there is enough friction in the system, especially when you have the ability to sort of hone in on the people who are actually experiencing those paywall problems and say, look, I'll give you a lower friction experience. How do you find them, though? Uh, well, we've got two and a half billion clicks, uh, you know, sort of worth of traffic in our platform. Every time you click on a story from a, a client uh, of ours, it actually goes through our platform. And so we actually have the ability to create cohorts of uh, users based on the types of, of content that they're consuming. So, hey, I know this group of people is interested in political content. This group is interested in financial content. How many of them are hitting a paywall, though, right now? Uh, probably about 15, 20 percent. OK, monthly. Yeah. Got it. So you'll just basically introduce something there where it says, hey, instead of paying seven bucks a month to get the Wall Street Journal, participate in our in our you know token issuance and never see a paywall again. Uh, we, I won't say never see a paywall again because that's a pretty high bar, but in general, say hey, see fewer paywalls and have a better experience. And how many of these big guys do you have opted in? I imagine you have to have all the big, I mean, you have to have a majority of these guys bought in for a consumer like me to want to do this. Well, it's interesting. You're, you're exactly right. We do need to get scale there. And so we've got the 200 customers who, who are our sort of social flow customers we have a commercial arrangement with. We've talked to close to a dozen of them about what we're doing here. And we, uh, unlike some others who've gone out and said, okay, I want to build my publisher network first, we've already got a publisher network. We're building out the value proposition to them. We're doing the capital raise and we're just now kicking off, okay, how are we going to define the system? Who's going to opt in and, and what actual value can we deliver to the consumer? And technically, let's say that I do put my own money behind your your token issuance here. How will you know that like my IP address and when when I my IP hits the New York Times thing right through through your program that I am actually valid on the blockchain? I am actually opted in. Well, it's interesting. When you opt into our system, you give us your, your sort of your email address and then you do it from a, a device. One of the interesting challenges you just raised is you've got a laptop right in front of you. You've got a phone probably sitting next to you. Maybe you have an ad, iPad in the other room. So one of the interesting user adoption challenges is how do we sync up all of your devices so that you and your identity sort of spans that? Never mind the situation when you log in on somebody That's else's right. computer. Yeah, exactly. So again, I will say the perfect it shouldn't be the enemy of the good. I don't know that I can solve the guest computer problem. I mean, that's a that's a very high bar. Well, what about but the easy one, solve. which is like phone to laptop problem? Yeah, phone to laptop. Well, it, it basically, you have to opt in from both devices and just sort of let us know that that's you. I mean, I, we need some signal that says, okay, and, and probably the first time that'll happen is when you hit a paywall. And it's like, oh, I, this, you know, I need to make it clear that, that this is Nathan. I'm, I'm on my iPhone. And then boom, we, we take the friction out of the yeah. process. All right, Jim, very good. Let's wrap up here with the famous five. Number one, What's your favorite business book? My favorite business book, uh, Good to Great. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying right now? No. Number three, what is your favorite online tool for building your business? Uh, online tool for building my business. Mm, I don't have, no, on, none. Don't have I mean, one. what do you use every day the most? There's got to be tools you use. Uh, Slack. Okay. Number four, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Seven. Okay. And what's your situation? Married, single, kiddos? Married, three kids. Three, wow. And Jim, how old are you? Uh, 52. 52. Last question. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? <laughs> uh, to buy Google and Facebook stock when they went public. <laughs> Got 
Guys, there you have it from Jim by Google. He would have bought Google and Facebook stock earlier on. Uh, in, in serious terms, you know, he was part of the heyday back in 2012 when all these big exits in the social space, Buddy Media, Vitru, Involver, Wildfire, you name it, there were sales happening, Silver Pop. Uh, now he's jumping back into the game, specifically in 2013 with a company that was founded in 2010, already raised about 16 million bucks, working with a lot of publishers on helping them push content out to social. They've now raised about 32 million bucks, again, helping about 200 of these big, big publishers uh, bring in clicks back to their site and focus on how to make monetization work for them in a, in a landscape that's changing rapidly. Today, doing about 10 million bucks in ARR, that's up about 20 to 30% year over year. Uh, 90% plus renew, a revenue renewal basis, that's gross annually, and about 100% net revenue retention on a, on a uh, on an annual basis as well. Uh, again, about 45 people up in New York City building out this product right now doing a token issuance, hoping to raise 15 million bucks to get consumers behind them and enable micropayments so that they see less pay walls and have generally a better experience. Jim, thank you for taking us to the top. All right. Thank you.